Hello and welcome. On behalf of CME Outfitters, I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us for these CME Snacks. This is titled Exploring New and Emerging Amyloid Targeting Therapies to Inform Patient Selection and Increase Optimal Care in a Timely Manner. I'm Professor of Medicine at Mayo Clinic, and I have with us today Dr. Nicholas Blaine. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Hello, everyone, and uh, thank you for the invitation, and uh, I'm very glad to, to share with uh, Professor Tangelis uh, this uh, session. So I'm Nicolas Villain. I'm uh, an Associate Professor of Neurology in uh, Saint-Petrien Hospital in Paris, and um, yes, I've been working on this uh, anti-amyloid uh, immunotherapies in uh, Alzheimer's disease, and I'm currently uh, leading um, a biomarker team in uh, the Paris Brain Institute. So to frame today's discussions, let's go over our learning objective, which is to evaluate the clinical practice implications of the clinical trial data for establishing and emerging amyloid targeting therapies. And a lot was presented at the AAIC meeting. We're going to get on to that information. That's our goal today. So Dr. Blank, start with us uh, off with a quick overview of how ATTs work. So ATT are immunotherapies, meaning uh, monoclonal antibodies, human-derived monoclonal antibodies that target amyloid beta. Uh, they target different um, forms of amyloid beta according to the antibody we will talk about later. So first of all, you've got the lecanemab that we will mention later that binds to the protofibrils, um, which are the first stages of aggregation of amyloid beta, and we also have donanemab, which binds to a later stage of amyloid beta aggregation, which are the plaques, and uh, you also have aducanemab that has a larger range of binding, but also binds to uh, this uh, uh, also stops this uh, second enucleation mechanism that blocks fibrillar aggregation. So these drugs are all bind amyloid beta, but bind different uh, mechanism of amyloid beta aggregation. Um, nonetheless, these three drugs have the same property that wasn't there with the first amyloid uh, targeting uh, therapies that were first tested in the end of the year 2000, which, are, which is they, they are given at a high dose to the patients, and this has a very strong effect on amyloid PET, meaning that it lowers a lot the amyloid load of the brain. So these three drugs have different targets, but the common mechanism is targeting amyloid beta and lowering at a high level, the amyloid plaques from the brain. So before we go on, let's let's talk a little bit about the basic theory behind what amyloid is doing to the brain in Alzheimer's patients. Wow, that's a big debate. So I cannot sum it up in five minutes. It would be an insult to all my colleagues, but let's try to be objective. The main a biological hypothesis and the most solid we have for the moment in Alzheimer's is the amyloid cascade hypothesis, which predicts that everything starts from amyloid peptide that then induces tau pathology and neurodegeneration and then turns to symptoms. 
Of course, it's debated because it's a 30-year-old theory which has a lot of caveats, but still that remains the most solid theory we have for the moment. Other focus on Tao, which can itself be um, initiated in the brain before amyloid, and even when you remove amyloid, Tao can be autonomous. Uh, so it's not that simple. You also have other mechanisms beyond amyloid that involve microglia, that involve endocytosis, dysfunction. So let's be clear, amyloid is not the alpha and omega of Alzheimer, and I think everybody agrees on that now, but amyloid remains a major player in Alzheimer's disease pathophysiology. So, so I think the major player piece is just a perfect way to, to move forward because all of the work that has been done on monoclonal antibodies uh, has been against one or another form of amyloid. So we've got drugs now that actually target amyloid at various different mechanisms of action, but, but that's their goal, and their goal is to remove amyloid from the brain. Now, the first drug that came out that actually had the biomarker evidence that it worked was aducanumab, but that drug didn't have all of the clinical data that supported moving forward with approval process. So let's take a look at the drug lecanumab in early AD. A lot of information came out regarding it at the AAIC meeting. Yes. So... Lecanemab is the first anti-amyloid drug that has obtained a full approval in the U.S., contrary to aducanumab, which is what you just said. Why is that? Contrary to aducanumab, we have a clear clinical trial with clear-cut data and clear-cut results. We don't have this ambiguous one positive and one negative trial. So let's have a look at it in detail. So lecanemab is one of these anti-amyloid drugs targeting protofibrils. It was tested here in early AD. Early AD means MCI due to AD or mild in dementia, MMSC superior to 22. Um, so in this trial, uh, which was a, a randomized control, phase-free clinical trial, multicentric, worldwide, it was performed in these patients with an 18-month duration. And what, uh, what else do we know? We know that the mean MMSC at baseline was around 24, and the primary uh, outcome was CDRSB. CDRSB, for those of you who are not familiar with this uh, uh, clinical scale, it's an hybrid cognitive and functional scale that ranges from zero when you don't have any cognitive impairment, no cognitive complaint, to 18 where you have severe dementia. Uh, at baseline, uh, the lecanemab arm and the placebo arm had around 3.2 uh, on the CDRSB scale. After 18 months, the, the placebo arm moved from 3.2 to 4.8. And the lecanemab arm moved from 3.2 to 4.4. So we have a difference of 0.45 on the CDRSB scale, which was statistically significant and which made this trial a positive trial. 
and this primary endpoint was confirmed in almost every secondary efficacy endpoint that was tested here, cognitive endpoints, clinical endpoints, and functional endpoints. So that's a non-debatable uh, positive trial. Um, what else can we say about efficacy? It works. How much does it work? It works of, like I said, a 0.45 difference on an 18-point scale. So that's not much, of course. But as you see, patients did not worsen more than 1.6 points during this 18 months. So we cannot expect that the patient would have had um, a better outcome. So lecanemab works. It impacts the, uh, the, the clinical outcome of Alzheimer's disease with a small effect size, but it works. What about now uh, the safety? These drugs are um, immunotherapies, so it's a bi-monthly infusion. Patient has infusion every two weeks. And uh, the main um, um, side effect is ARIA, ARIA for amyloid-related uh, imaging abnormality. ARIA is much more than an imaging abnormality because it's edema or MRH of a brain, but can sometimes, in about 1% of treated patients, be associated with serious clinical symptoms, serious clinical symptoms being, in this case, uh, epilepsy, uh, confusion, etc. So that's what we see um, in, um, in this graph. So about 12% of patients treated by adekanemab are uh, an edema of the brain versus 1.7% in the placebo arm. So that's consistent with what we know with this class of drug. And the serious adverse events were higher in the lecanema arm uh, versus the placebo arm. And about 1% of uh, ARIA were associated with uh, serious adverse events. So these are the main reasons of this drug. So that's the first in class uh, positive trial of an anti-amyloid drug in Alzheimer's disease, and that's really a breakthrough. But the effect size of a clinical effect remains small for the moment, and we have to discuss the risk-benefit ratio because of this um, serious adverse event that can happen in patients. So we'll get on to our second drug in just a second, but um, again, uh, the drugs that have been so far successful have really cleared amyloid out of the brain. That's one. And then secondly, they've got these clinical endpoints. The one that we focused on here was the uh, CDR, some of the boxes. But they did meet a lot of secondary endpoints as well, which gave us all a very good feeling for how these drugs might play out as we go forward. Now, the other thing to remember here is that this drug and the next one, both of them are for early AD or MCI of AD. So let's go to the next discussion. This was a lot of information that came out at the AAIC on donanumab, which we expect to have full FDA approval probably by the end of the year. Go ahead. Yeah, so donanumab is a cousin of uh, lecanemab. And the trial design is quite similar. It's about the same population, early AD, 
um, which means uh, biomarker-proven Alzheimer's disease, and early stage. Um, there are a bit of some differences between the trial that needs to be highlighted because it's important. First of all, the main difference is the use of tau pets in the donanemab design. It wasn't used in the lecanemab trial. The lecanemab trial only used amyloid PET or biomarker from the CSF. Here in Trailblazer ALS2, they used both amyloid and tau PET for patient selection. And they selected not all patients who were positive with a tau PET, but only patients with a low to medium tau level on the tau PET. So high-level tau was excluded. So it's not exactly the same population as lecanema. This, in addition, they also enlarged the range of uh, uh, clinical severity because the minimal MMS score was 20 versus 22 for lecanema. So we have similarities, but the, the patient or, uh, and the selection no, a bit different, and this this will be important in case of approval because, of course, approval will mostly uh, copy paste the inclusion criteria. So maybe this drug will imply that approval will also come with the use of tau pet in clinical practice before the drug can be given to a patient. So once we've said that, what kind of results do we see? It's still an 18-month trial, like uh, Clarity AD. So it's still a multicentric. Uh, phase-free randomized control trial, same design, same duration. The primary endpoint was IADRS, which is a, 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 an hybrid scale again. Lily, uh, the sponsor of this drug, um, it's a, they, they designed this scale a few years ago, and it's, a, like CDRSB, a mix of cognitive scale and functional scale. Uh, the CDF primary endpoint was positive, meaning that it's um, AI, a, sorry, IACRS uh, is a 144-point scale, and uh, the patient, the placebo arm, lost about uh, nine points of uh, AIDRS during um, the 18 months of the trial, whereas the placebo lost about six, 5.5 uh, uh, points on this scale. So that's a free point difference on this uh, 144 uh, uh, clinical scale. The other primary secondary endpoint was CDRSB, and there were multiple other secondary endpoints. And again, like lecanemab, the trial was positive on every secondary endpoint. And we have a quite similar thing that we saw on lecanemab, which is the placebo group worsened by about 1.8 points on CDRSB during the 18 months and the uh, treated group at about 1.2 points on the uh, CDRSB during the 18 months and the difference was 0 0.67 uh, on the CDRSB, which you can compare to the 0 0.45 points on the CDRSB with lecanemab. So we have positive trial on both primary and secondary endpoints with a maybe a larger magnitude of effects than lecanemab, but it's difficult to compare them directly since the population was not exactly the same. And again, uh, we have a, a similar problem as lecanemab, which are the uh, adverse events. 
again, it's the same adverse event. It's RER with edema and MRH of the brain. So we have um, 24% of uh, patients who had uh, an, uh, an RER, which is twice what we saw in Lecanema, but also the placebo group had a higher range, uh, higher rate of uh, RER. So probably the way of measuring RER was not similar between the two trials. Anyway, it's one patient uh, of the four who had uh, um, RER during this trial, and three patients died from this RER during uh, the, the, the core trial. So that's important to, to underline that not only um, Aria was serious but could lead to death in this trial. That was not the case in Lecanemab. Free death occurred but in the open label extension of the trial. Here in the core trial we observed free deaths. So again, we have a, a significant and uh, undisputable uh, positive uh, uh, phase 3 randomized controlled trial of an anti-amyloid therapy in Alzheimer's disease and that's really a breakthrough, big news. Again, the magnitude of, and the size effect is not magical, and there are uh, serious adverse events that we need to be careful. So that's really a revolution of Alzheimer's disease. Now we have potentially disease-modifying therapy with these drugs, but we have to be very careful as physicians when we prescribe them. We have to select the patient so that we lower the risk and we increase the probability that the patient will benefit more of the drug. So our practitioners that are tuned in and are listening to this, some of the first things that they're going to uh, note is that they're going to have patients and families come to their offices knocking on the door for these drugs. There's no question about that. We've hinted at patient selection because it's going to have to be, these drugs were 18-month trials. They were early and mild cases. And uh, one of the other things that the clinicians are really going to pay attention to is the fact that the scales, the clinical scales that were used were not just these obscure cognitive scales, but they were functional scales. So clinicians get these patients coming in when the function declines. That's when the people come knocking on the door, and these drugs did not abandon the look at uh, functional changes and Im not improvements, but dec uh, less decline as time went on. Anything else you want to add before we move on to further discussion? No, that's absolutely true, and that's because the FDA moved and uh, told the industry that if you develop drugs for Alzheimer's disease, it has to include functional scales. So that's what the sponsor did, and that's why they used this hybrid cognitive functional scale. So the debate in the field is, is the treatment meaningful? Well, it impacts a functional scale. So yes, it can be meaningful for a patient, but meaningful doesn't mean a large effect. So that's all the patient need to know it will probably mean something for them, but it won't stop the disease, it won't cure the disease. Let's, um, let's talk a little bit, because you brought it up quite a bit, uh, let's talk about the, the side effects, the ARIA-E and the ARIA-H. Uh, you've already said we've got to pick the right patient. Uh, they're going to have to be able to go through MRIs. They're going to have Absolutely. to be 
come in on a regular basis for their infusions. But let's talk about the major um, side effect, the REA-E and the REA-H. Tell us about that. So REA-E are edema of the brain that are induced by the drugs. For those of you who may have uh, basics in uh, neurology, they know um, the inflammatory forms of uh, amyloid angiopathy, cerebral amyloid angiopathy, CAA. Well, let's say that for those of you who know that, it's a drug-induced CAA inflammatory form. Um, for those of you who do not know what what is that, well, you have a, an inflammation of the brain that is due to the high clearance of the amyloid protein through the perivascular space, and at some point it clogs or it targets and starts an inflammatory um, uh, cascade. So that's what is REA-E. REA-H is the bleeding due to the fact that the drug targets amyloid in the vessel, which is again named CAA, and when you remove amyloid from the vessel, actually it makes it uh, bleed. So you have these two side effects. That's well-known side effects of uh, this uh, drug category. And at first, when we tested them on the first anti-amyloid therapies, they were um, mostly uh, asymptomatic, and we had never seen any severe case of ARIA. The symptoms occur in about 25% of uh, treated patients. So you have three patients without any symptoms. So you just realize you have an area because you have a systematic MRI. And when it happens, it's only headaches or uh, blurry vision. So mild symptoms, you just keep going and it disappears itself. That's what we knew from area. And then came aducanumab, lecanemab, and donanemab, where we increased the dose of these drugs, and we also increased the severity of this area. And we saw that in about now in this high dose uh, anti-amyloid therapy, we have about 1% who have this serious area, so that can be uh, epilepsy, um, um, uh, loss of consciousness, and uh, death. So we, we've seen now uh, six cases of uh, death under these drugs when we combine lecanemab and donanemab data. And um, yeah, that's a concern. Uh, that's a concern because these drugs uh, will be given to a lot of patients because we have a lot of patients with Alzheimer's disease. So we need to understand better the risk factors of ARIA and to avoid the individual with the highest risk factors of ARIA. We avoid that these individuals with the risk factors of ARIA are eligible for this drug. The main risk factors for ARIA we know for the moment is the APOE uh, status. APOE is a risk factor of Alzheimer's disease. It's also a risk factor for uh, cerebral amyloid angiopathy, and it's a risk factor of ARIA. When you are APOE4 positive, and you also have a dose effect when you are APOE4 positive and homozygous, you have a higher risk of ARIA and a higher risk of severe ARIA. So for the moment, we there is a caution uh, of use in patients who are homozygous for APOE4 because they are at high risk of ARIA and high risk of severe ARIA. That's the first factor. Second factor is the baseline microbleeds in the brain. We know that 
microbleeds in the brain at baseline can be a sign of CAA. And these drugs seem to induce more aria when you have a lot of CAA in your brain. So be sure that if your patient has CAA or a lot of comorbid cerebrovascular disease, it will be at higher risk for aria. And the, uh, the last risk factor is anticoagulants. Lecanemab and donanemab were the first uh, RCTs to allow uh, anticoagulant to be given to the patient. Aducanemab forbid it, cantonarumab forbid it, and what they observed is a higher severity of aria MRH with patients under anticoagulants. So that's three elements you need to be aware of when we advise your patient to be given this drug, APOE4 status, baseline microbeads under anticoagulant because this free factor can increase your risks and do not affect uh, the efficacy. So we have to be careful. Uh, genetic testing probably is appropriate because we need to know the uh, APOE status. There's higher risk with uh, homozygous E4 carriers. Uh, you've also touched on uh, the um, uh, essentially you've touched on the appropriate use criteria. You didn't we that was covered at this meeting as well. And even though the anticoagulants were allowed in the clinical trials, uh, the appropriate use criteria said this is a big risk. The, 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 because these drugs only do um, what they're supposed to do and, and end up with these microbleeds and hemorrhages, um, the anticoagulant status has to be very carefully looked at and the risk benefit has to be appropriate. What do you want to say about clinical use of these drugs in people on the new novel anticoagulants? So let me be clear on the appropriate use criteria and the anticoagulant statements. Uh, we're not talking about aspirin or uh, clopidogrel. We're really talking about Coumadin, Warfarin. We're talking about the novel anticoagulants, uh, Eliquis, Apixaban that those categories, there's the increased risk there. Well, uh, appropriate use um, depends, of course, on your country. I am French, you're American, so we may have a, a different use in the end. So I'm not going to say what I, we are going to do in France, but I'm going to tell you what the American experts advised. So... What the American experts advised is, of course, to start from the inclusion and exclusion criteria of lecanemab trial, because, of course, we wouldn't know what we are doing um, in patients out of this criteria. So you really need to focus on the, the stages of Alzheimer's disease that were tested in this trial, that were we underlined earlier, so mild AD, dementia, or MCI not more than MMSC 22, unless MMSC is also uh, a test that can be influenced by other parameters, but it gives you an idea of the severity of a patient, so early symptomatic Alzheimer's. Well, as the committee said, and contrary to what is written in the FDA notice, 
you have to be careful of the cerebrovascular pathology and uh, before your patient is on this drug. Then you also need to have a positive biomarker that proves that the patient does have amyloid, is not amnestic because of another neurodegenerative disease without amyloid, so you need either to have an amyloid PET or CSF analysis uh, with uh, amyloid biomarkers. And, of course, uh, you, you need to have a care partner to help you with um, and can report any changes that could reflect an area, a symptomatic, an asymptomatic area, because it can give you confusion, delirium. So uh, these are the um, inclusion criteria. Regarding the exclusion criteria, of course, we need to be careful about the APOE status. Interestingly, the veteran affairs in the U.S. decided not to cover lecanemab for APOE4 homozygous, whereas the appropriate use recommendation just mentioned a warning about APOE4 homozygous like does the FDA notice. So we have a different uh, interpretation of the same results here. Um, so uh, you have to be careful about that. You have to be careful about the cerebrovascular. And you, uh, of course, need to inform your patient that it's a monthly infusion for donanimab, bi-monthly infusion, uh, bi-weekly, uh, for, for lecanemab twi twice a month and once a month. Uh, so that's, you need to be committed. And, uh, of course, um, your anticoagulant that we mentioned and the, the, the expert committee of the U.S. really contradicts it. The FDA notice says it's a simple warning. You can prescribe it. We do not uh, contraindicate it. So, you know, it's um, medicine. So sometimes the, the line is not clear-cut. Um, to be honest, we don't have a lot of data regarding uh, anticoagulant for the moment. Uh, about 8% um, in the lecanemab trial were under anticoagulant. So we mostly rely on a, on a few data sets. That's why the FDA was um, a bit more elusive about uh, draw, drawing uh, a black line on, uh, on this. Um, so that's mainly what you need to know and to tell to your patient. So it will slow down Alzheimer's disease for at least the early stages. We don't know after that. It has some drawbacks, some side effects, but it's the best drug we've ever seen for the moment. So it's up to you now. Yeah, I, I, I certainly don't want to scare off our prescribers. Um, again, I have to uh, be, be careful when I say that these are safe drugs because essentially they're monoclonals and the only thing they do is impact the amyloid as far as the biomarker, the, the tau being another degenerative biomarker that was used in the one study. But, but they're, they're drugs that actually do work. Now, the, the clinician's going to say, geez, I'm just going to use less drug. And we have to caution against that because we know that if you don't clear it out of the brain, you don't get the clinical benefits. So the drug, when we talk about, when you talk about high dose, it's a dose high enough to clear amyloid from the brain. So, yes, absolutely. High dose is the necessary dose to uh, induce amyloid clearance. 
Low dose doesn't do anything. It lowers sometimes according to a trial amyloid load, but it does not impact symptoms at all. So high dose is the only dose that is approved uh, for anti-amyloid drugs. So let's be clear about that. There is just one dose for lecanemab, one dose for donanemab. There is no low dose or high dose. I mention high or low because to explain the past and the previous failures, but now we are just focusing on high dose. Um, and of course, it works. As uh, we presented the graphs earlier, we have a significant effect. There is no bias in this trial, so definitely this drug works. They work, they work better and above the anti-cholinesterase uh, inhibitors than we, that we previously had because about 50% of the patients in this trial were under these drugs, so it works on the top of that. It works on a different mechanism. Um, yes, you can combine these drugs and you will have a higher effect than the previously established drug. My comment is meant for the geriatricians who like low dose. Older patients, the mantra is always low dose. And in this situation, there is, as you point out, one dose. And so yes. that's, that's the take-home message there. Before I let you go, um, there's a couple more things I'd like to cover. These trials went 18 months. There were a number of presentations that created a longer-term trajectory. So, again, our clinicians are going to go, what happens after 18 months? One, does amyloid reaccumulate? And two, after 18 months, am I actually done with therapy? Uh, that's the end of it. Can you comment? Absolutely. And that's an actual question mark. We don't really know how it works after 18 months. We have a lot of um, expectations. We also have a lot of guesses. And we don't know for the moment. So let's focus on this analysis that uh, we performed with uh, Laszlo Racket from Lilly Company. And we presented that AAIC together, uh, it tried to model different long-term scenarios of the, the, the trials that we've seen. It did not present data from Donaneva because they were presented during the Congress, so it could not anticipate the poster, of course. So we only have the aducanumab and the lecanumab on the right-hand side. So in the, the not-dotted line, um, um, is um, the clinical trajectory of a normal patient with Alzheimer's disease, and you see it's the CD or some of boxes scale, so it's similar to the graph we've seen before, but with a larger time window. See, a patient, it takes him about 18 years of duration when the first amyloid lesion appears and when it reaches the stages of severe dementia. 18 years, and we only have 18 months, so it's a limited time window. So we tried to imagine what it could be. So if the drugs or actual disease modifier, if they actually change the course of a the disease, then the benefits could be huge. Could be 20 to 30 percent of difference in a, a evolution of Alzheimer's disease, which would be 
wow, some amazing results. That's one scenario. The other scenario is that it works as a disease modifier, but only on this stage of the disease. And after that, tau pathology becomes autonomous and the clinical worsening keeps again its natural course. So in that case, you would only have a small benefit of a drug, which would be a few months on an 18 month, on an 18 year duration of a disease. So that's really unknown for the moment, which scenario will take place. And of course, we ask for more trials and the company is starting new trials to, to see how it works after 18 months. But for the moment, we have to say that it's a question mark and we can only make guesses. And in this regard, I would like to underline that maybe Donanimab is an interesting option. Why is that? Because Donanimab design was a monthly infusion and you stop the drug once your amyloid is fully cleared from your brain that you measure with amyloid pets. So that's an easy way to prescribe the drug. You give it and then when amyloid is out, you stop it and you give a new shot when it starts again. But that's simple. So we don't have to worry about um, the long-term effect of the drug since the drug will be stopped. Lecanemab is more complicated because it wasn't planned that you have to stop the drug. So people were testing this trial with, uh, with an infusion every two weeks. So how long should we keep giving this infusion? Eight years, 10 years, 18 years? We really don't know. So we will have more data coming to answer these kind of questions, especially from the ALSNET registry that has been started in the US for patients under anti-amyloid therapies. So we'll have new answers with that. We'll also have answers with uh, open-label extensions of this trial. So more to come on uh, this uh, on this topic. Uh, uncertainties for the moment, and patients should be aware of that. But definitely in this time window, the drug works. As part of our CME requirement, we want to present a case uh, to discuss uh, briefly today. And this is Liana. And uh, this is the second patient I've encountered this week who actually had trouble with her GPS device. It's, it's, it's a new phenomenon to be be certain. But this is a 60-year-old female who presents to neurology by her PCP uh, in referral. Uh, the diagnosis is MCI due to Alzheimer's disease. So it's music to our ears. This is the right kind of patient to think about based on her history, underlying causes, and cognitive assessment. She also has diabetes type 2 and hypertension for 15 years. No other family history of AD. So what she says is, I keep forgetting how to clock in at work and have to ask coworkers for help. I guess I asked the same person more than once, and they expressed concern. Then the other day, I had to pull up my GPS to get home. I think I was near the same route I usually take, but I couldn't recognize anything. That really freaked me out, so I decided to tell my doctor about the 
experience. So this case, would this person be a candidate for the new targeted therapies? So we need to do some extra assessment before we decide that. First of all, we need a a complete cognitive testing to be sure that she has actually a minor or major neurocognitive disorder and she has the right cognitive scale to be used uh, before we use an anti an, an amyloid targeting therapy, which are MMSC, CD, or SB. If she fits in and she fulfills the criteria of MCI due to AD or mild AD dementia, then we'll also need um, biomarker testing, so either amyloid PET or CSF analysis, which are now FDA approved. And finally, we will need an MRI to exclude individuals like Layana, who may also have, since she has type 2 diabetes, hypertension, a comorbid cerebrovascular disease, which could be a contraindication to the drug. And if she fulfills the criteria for biomarker, she's amyloid positive, she doesn't have any comorbid cerebrovascular disease, she has MCI due to AD or mild AD dementia after a formal cognitive testing, then she can be a candidate for amyloid targeting therapies. We'll, of course, talk to her about that and then tell her that APOE4 testing is now an option to better understand what is your benefit and risk uh, to have this drug, and then she can decide with a care partner if she will be under this drug or not. Well, Dr. Villain, I want to thank you very much uh, for your time. I, I, For those of us who didn't get to Amsterdam, I hope you had a great time at AAIC in Amsterdam. You've shared a lot of information with us. And I want to go, uh, I hope we've met our endpoints, and I want to go to some of the SMART goals that we've tried to cover today, the specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely pieces that, that you've helped us put together to to take care of uh, patients with Alzheimer's disease that have biomarker evidence, that have early disease that might benefit from these drug therapies. So our goals are to educate these patients uh, regarding these new therapies, and you've covered the safety and efficacy data very, very well so that our clinicians tuning in know the potential benefits and harms in these uh, targeted therapies. I think you've given us plenty of information regarding the selection of patients for the amyloid targeted therapies, and we'll follow those recommendations as closely as we can because, in, in fact, we want these drugs to be successful. We want our patients and their families to be successful, and the best way that we can ensure that these drugs get used correctly is that they're used on the right patients. That will have the best buzz and the best opportunity uh, to proceed with them. And then we want to ensure that all of our patients receiving these uh, targeted therapies are supported by a clinical team, the medical resources, and the social services that are necessary there. This is not an undertaking to be um, handled lightly. Uh, it has to be a team approach. There's a lot of moving parts. There's the MRI scans. There's the uh, clinical assessments that have to be there. There's looking for um, 
um, ARIA-E and ARIA-H, both in clinical symptoms and on MRI. So I think we've, we've done a pretty good job of going over the safety information as well. Do you have any final comments for our audience? Um, I think we are starting a new era of Alzheimer treatments, and we need to be balanced. We need to make it work. And to make it work, as you underlined, we need to select the good patient that can benefit from this drug. So we have to propose these drugs to the good stage of Alzheimer um, without a lot of comorbidities. And if we do that correctly and we do not give it to everyone, then we will make it work. We will improve the drugs over time. We will improve the patient to treat Combination therapies will probably come and improve the effects. So Alzheimer's disease is now starting a new era, and let's make it right. Thank you. Please visit the Alzheimer's Disease Hub. It's got free resources and education for healthcare professionals and patients. We've listed the uh, address here for you. And then to receive credit, um, both CE and CME, uh, participants must complete the post-test and evaluation online. Participants will be able to download and print their certificate immediately upon completion.